Hello and welcome to Null Pointers. We are your hosts, Mark, Stephen, and Gerald. And today we'll be talking about versioning software. But before we get into software versioning, I think there is one topic we haven't yet discussed on this podcast, though we have furiously written about it. I know Gerald even has made a video about it, and it's the GitHub Copilot. Are we out of a job? I mean, things are running wild. People, Some people seem to love it. Some people seem to hate it. And then there is, again, the, the obvious crowd that just doesn't really care. So, Stephen, what, what's your take on Copilot? Will this be the future? I am the latter. No, I, I, it's not like I don't care. I haven't tried it yet, I must admit. Um, but it's it's a tool like any other, in my opinion. And with any tool or new things, people hate it or love it. And I think this falls firmly in that category. I mean, it, it can be useful for, like, I think, simple functions, like things like is even or is odd or, you know, that kind of really boilerplate simple stuff. Sure, just use it and do that. But do check it, like, a few times, possibly, because it's it's still a machine doing a lot of stuff that you might not be expecting it to do. Now, before Gerald comes on with, in with the truth, because I think he's... The only one of us three that actually has got access to the beta, which is still closed. You can sign up for it. You can wait for it. You can hope for it. And maybe you will be granted to play around with it. So the things that I've seen, are some of them are really cool because it's like IntelliSense, but more. So I can see some repetitive tasks that I've been doing over the past couple of days programming where you would just think like if IntelliSense would have just a little bit more intelligence maybe a little bit more ai sprinkled over it it might even figure out that i'm uh just configuring another uh, odata endpoint and that it would just generate these methods for me because it knows uh, which types are in the background and stuff like that so i think for those tasks it can be really helpful i have also seen some fun bloopers going on so that's uh, i think the way they did it they trained it it's an ai and they train it with open source code and some people checked in API keys into the open source code. So if you write a, if you want to write against a certain API, your GitHub Copilot might be so kind and provide you with a trial key. Let's say that and put that in air quotes. Yeah, but Gerald, you've been testing it. What are your thoughts so far? <laughs> now it suddenly sounds like I'm the expert. You I'll, are. I'll pretend. I'll pretend. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it is. Uh, it's it's very impressive. Uh, it's exactly like you say. Basically, it's. Uh, well, not IntelliSense. It's IntelliCode plus plus basically. Oh, sorry. Because, you know, sorry. IntelliCode is like the, the 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 one that already uses the AI within Visual Studio, right? That already gives you suggestions for when you do a couple of the same refactor actions. It will also indicate other places in your code where it says like, "Hey, maybe you want to do the same thing here." And I think that's kind of like also what the big difference is between these two solutions at the moment. It's like you know, IntelliCode will basically only learn from your code while copilot will you know have the entire internet um, at its disposal and uh, learn from all the code out there basically and see what you're trying to write um, again it's very impressive um, if you look at like I think you have to go to copilot.github.com to be honest I don't know if I got in easy because you know I'm on the list of employees uh, because I signed up and within a few hours I was in uh, so I'm not sure if that 
also is the experience for people outside of Microsoft or GitHub. But uh, that was how it was for me. So, you know, I'm lucky. Um, and yeah, so in my video, I go over a few things. And, uh, you know, basically every um, language is already supported. Uh, but they only name a few like JavaScript, Python, TypeScript, that kind of things. Go, I think, um, is one of them as well. Probably because, you know, they, they just had more data to, to train it with and they focused on those. Uh, but if you start typing C-sharp stuff, that works just as well. Um, but yeah, it's, it's very interesting because it indeed comes back with API keys. Um, so I've seen a tweet, I think, about like Mailgun API uh, keys coming back that were actual fun actually functional um, and you know you could say that like you know they should be um, checking those into public repositories but anyone can make mistakes um, so it, it also kind of depends like how this was trained right at what point in time maybe your api key was in there but you deleted it now um, which is still not great you, you should have disabled it if you noticed that it was out in the public um, but anyway uh, but not just that it will also suggest sometimes uh, comment blocks, so comments on top of your file, and it will say the author was this person who is not you. Um, so that is kind of interesting as well. Uh, but yeah, so that you know makes you wonder, and there's also uh, a, a lot of people out there who are legitimately angry at how this stuff is going right now because you know it's probably taking code it specifically mentions on the page that's kind of interesting that it's not just github uh that it's you know taking code from the internet or something vague like that so it might be that they took you know all of stack overflow or uh the wherever they can find code they will pull it from there uh, but it does not seem to take into account like the license that's attached to the code because you know if it's open source then a lot of the times you have to uh, provide the original license or you have to um, credit the original author um, so you know there's a lot of nuances between the licenses um, and you can't just take the code and use it basically which is going to happen now at large scale um, so you know uh, although you know if i go back to the github side they say like hey we synthesize code air quotes um, so they're not literally copying stuff and I think I also noticed from Nat Friedman, who is the CEO at GitHub at the moment, a tweet um, or a thread who said like, you know, trading our models like this for the greater good, again, air quotes, is kind of fair use. Um, and a lot is suddenly allowed in fair use. And he also hinted kind of, I don't know if he said it like out loud, but he also kind of hinted like, you know, we can see some lawsuits and, and, and legal stuff coming our way. But, you know, we'll see that come and we're happy to participate in the discussion and figure that out once and for all, basically. So, you know, there is, besides, you know, from a technical standpoint, very impressive, very cool. You can basically just press the tab key a couple of times, just write out literally in in natural language in English, you can write out like, I want the function to do this um, and it will boom, generate the whole method for you, which is really cool. Actually, I, I saw a, a video, another video where they went to leadcode.com, I think, uh, which is probably, you know, a, a fun uh, play at like the, the, the uh, 
questions that are asked at interviews at tech companies to get in, which are very hard. So you, so you can train these questions. Um, and he just pulled up those questions. He basically, it, 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 they're assignments that you can do at home. So leadcode.com, I think. Um, I will I will get the link for the video and, and that website and put them in the show notes. Uh, but he will get like the, the kind of conditions that you have to uh, satisfy. Um, he will just put that in a file put it in comments, then start typing, and it will understand whatever the context is of that thing, and it will generate the solution. He pastes back the solution to that website, and it actually gives him like, hey, this is like better than 80% of the other people who done this assignment because of this and that. So it was actually also pretty good code. So from that standpoint, very, very interesting from like a legal license kind of perspective. Yeah, I'm very curious where that's going to go, but um, we'll see. So the only thing left is basically to write somewhere, record podcast about blah, 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 and have yeah. it spit out a pod. Yeah, I think we had the episode on bots, right? Where we also mm. were taken over by bots. So this is this is taking it a step further. Could be coming, could be coming. Yeah, and, and of course, you know, Stephen, that is not going to work because we have to say record podcast on subject, else we will... Well, well, maybe we can put a randomizer in there. I don't know. There's enough on the internet, so it, it'll figure uh, something out of a topic. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, <laughs> we suddenly get a mashup from all kind of podcasts. That should be yeah, cool. but we Yeah, why not? Why not? We could see how that goes. A fun experiment. Why not? I, I would be actually open to that. I, would, I know they do it for certain um, sport things. They already, they're like some news articles that are already written by AI, I've once heard. Hmm. So one one quick thing I wanted to still note, like you know, the the, the in different variations of how serious someone is about it, like the, oh, will we have a job? Is it that smart that it's going to take over? Like I don't think so. It's still you know AI is still as smart as the data that we put in there, so we still need data to put in there. Um, and also, you know, I think it really helps. I think Mark, you already mentioned that, like to to write that code that you actually don't want to write. It can you know come up with models for you. It could come up with syntax for creating that REST call, do all those stuff. But, you know, really end-to-end -end applications, it's not going to write that for you. And even if it will at some point, then, you know, you still have the UI to worry about, the the other things uh, that you want to put in there. So, um, yeah, it's, it's not going to take over completely anytime soon, but uh, it can definitely be very helpful. Uh, I'm looking forward to it. I'm still signed up for the beta. So if anybody listens and has got any power, just feel free to bump me up on the line, then I will be able to test it. And who knows, maybe we'll then make a full-blown episode out of that one. But as it stands, GitHub Copilot is still in better. One day it will come out. And as with many great software, there's usually uh, a version number next to it. Uh, so like Visual Studio, the new version uh, 2021 is coming out soonish, or 2022? 2022, yep. OK, there you go. 2022 is coming out. Might be underwater, number 17. Yes, it's 17. Yeah. So yeah. to make it confusing. So you see, so version numbers are everywhere. If you are a developer and you're using NuGet packages, you might have seen some version numbers there. The same goes for NPM. And so I think like, what what is the biggest clue? Why do we even have version numbers? Why can't we just live with the simple fact that the current thing is the current? Well, quite simply because next week, the current thing might not be the current thing anymore. So for example, if you have a version of a software package and some bug is fixed in the meantime, as a developer, you want to know whether or not you have that version that has that bug fix. And you can go and test and try things out. And that can be very time consuming, depending on the scope of your project. But the versioning number or the version number tells you, well, 
pretty much straight away, this is the version you're running. These are the things that are in there or the fixes or other features or that kind of stuff. And it also allows developers of those packages to keep track of all that stuff. So if, if someone is logging an issue for you and it's occurring in version X and it didn't occur in version Y, you could go into your code and figure out what changed along the way. And it, it adds a lot of traceability that way as well. So I think that that is kind of like the core of things, the traceability stuff, because, you know, it would be so easy if everyone would just upgrade to the latest, latest version and we could just have continuous kind of pushing out code and that stuff. And But, you know, that's not how it works. And also, so the traceability and I think also having kind of like a, a status quo at that point, like if that makes sense. And also, that's probably what we're going to get into in a little bit as well, like the, the, the semantic versioning with like major, minor, whatever, that you can kind of have a guarantee. There's never guarantees in software development, but kind of have the promise that no breaking changes will happen within like you know if if it's not a major version upgrade so you know you kind of know that you can safely upgrade your packages to the next version which should only contain like uh, bug fixes within the functionality that you already have and then you know whenever you're going to actually upgrade then you can maybe look forward to breaking changes and you put in a little bit of extra attention to testing your application because that is kind of like also a a risk of you know using all these dependencies all these libraries that are out there, which are great, uh, but you're also making yourself like very, very vulnerable to changes from like the outside, right? So it's good to know that you have a certain version that you have tested that works with your application. Um, and like I said, if there's a minor upgrade to that, you can kind of safely assume that you're safe and it won't break too much. Um, and if it's a major upgrade, then you know you might want to thoroughly check that out first. Um, so yeah, and and also that's a very important thing that you touched upon, Stephen, is whenever you go out and submit a bug for something, please, please, please mention which version it is because that is very important because one, also before you're actually doing that and you're putting in the bug, check out if there is a newer version where the bug might be fixed because, you know, that might happen as well uh, because you're running an older version. But at the very least, specify the version number so that yeah, the maintainers know where to look for and get all the details in there. But that is a entirely different discussion. You brought it, I think, down to a point. I mean, version numbers, they really can help uh, discussing what you're working with. I mean, so I remember it's a, whenever you go into management country, that's how I'm going to call this from now on, you get a document and you get it attached as an email and then you get it sent back and then it's the document underscore new. And then there comes the newer version and the newest and the final, and the final, final, and the final, definitely final, final thing, final. And then there's the V2. And that's one way how you conversion stuff. Uh, I think one great thing that these days is no longer really needed is if you've got SharePoint in your company, SharePoint will actually track versions for you. So you can actually go back in time. That's really helpful. Try to teach that every manager that he does not have to copy is always into these emails. But Generally speaking, even there, I mean, even if you've got a simple document, you always have to version your stuff. And uh, thinking about code, I mean, usually we use uh, source control so we can check in our code. And with that, you also get a little tag, a little GUID that you can then use to know exactly at which point uh, this code has been changed. And you can even make tags in Git. So you could actually make versions in your Git. So you know, like, hey, then I built version 1.1.2. 
2012. This is the code that was behind that. So if you ever want to go exactly back to the same state of code as uh, that version is, you could do it like that. But generally speaking, I think, uh, yeah, the, the problem with solely relying on GitHub for versioning your software is that you can't really communicate breaking changes. So if I give you a GUID, you have got no idea what actually is behind that. And I think that's where, as Gerald, you mentioned, this semantic versioning comes in. And semantic versioning, uh, it depends a bit how you read upon it. Quickly check Wikipedia and some of it seems to be always the same. So if we got 1.1, the first 1.2, the first one is the major number. Then we have the minor, that would be the two. Then we have the dot, and this is a bit depending. Some say it's the maintenance, some say it's the build. And then you even could make a final dot, which is then the build of the revision. Uh, I think these days, a lot of us, we use continuous integration systems. So whenever we check something in, there will be a build. So we can attach the build number at the end. So I think major, minor, maintenance, build is usually what you run with. And some people they will use uh, as the maintenance, the build number, because they just can't be bothered in versioning so far down. And as you said, Gerald, I think we these uh, we can communicate changes that are happening to our code. Now, this is not like uh, the law and everyone has to follow it. It's just if you would use semantic versioning for your project and you notice notify your consumers, they can then have maybe a at a glance, if a new version comes out, they will know, oh, the major version changed, I should expect breaking changes or the minor version changed. So no breaking changes, but new features added and a maintenance build would usually mean like bug fixes or general performance improvements, which uh, some apps in the app store seem to be the sole release purpose that they're doing is general bug fixes and performance improvements. So yeah, those, those are the things now. I know you two, you're a big uh, library maintainer. So do you follow the semantic version on your libraries? I can say I do. Well, up to a certain degree. I mean, the major minor stuff, It's for me, it's always kind of tricky. Like when is something major enough to do a major? I think that is the main one. Uh, maintenance builds. Yeah, for me, it's, it's literally build because I just append the CICD build pipeline number or ID of that specific build. So yeah, it, I sort of follow it, but it's based on feeling whether I'll increase major or minor. It's not necessarily based <laughs> on any statistic of some sort. I must say I, I did the same thing for a lot of stuff, uh, but especially since, I don't know, since I've been working maybe on Xamarin Forms or something like that, there were, well, not so much discussions because they were basically, they are basically backwards compatible until eternity. And which is also pretty cool, but um, so maybe maybe it got into I, I I've given it more thought with the Xamarin Community Toolkit, where I basically said um, I mean that and that's the cool thing, right? If you're a library maintainer, you make the rules. That's the, one of the cool yeah. Things. Uh, but you know, if you are a more attached to a more official company, then you might want to put a little bit more thought into it. Um, so what we kind of did is kind of what I said earlier: no breaking changes, basically in minor version upgrade. So those are more like the surface releases. So 1.1, 1.2, 1.3 you know, just bug fixes or, well, I let minor new things slip in there, but, you know, I, I try to keep like actual API changes, so actual API on the surface. Uh, so a new property that you can use or a new method that you could call or a complete new control, uh, that goes into the next major version. And that is then um, also considered a breaking change, basically, right? Because you don't have 
just the API breaking change, but the, also the ABI, the binary interface breaking change, uh, which is, you know, a little bit more technical, I guess. But yeah, so that is kind of things to consider. And of course, you know, probably, Mark, if you look at the actual Wikipedia um, description, then you might want to do also something with like the, the maintenance number or what are all the numbers down there, the major minor uh, maintenance slash build or build slash revision. To be very honest, I don't know exactly what those does. Um, I've been using mostly major and minor, and that's kind of the things that I, um, you know, put out there with breaking or not breaking. Um, and that is kind of how we've implemented with that. But, you know, that also um, from the consumer side, you know, that's kind of clear, uh, but it, it also requires some or a lot of effort on the maintenance side. So if you look at it from like the code side, the Git side, you have to suddenly have an infrastructure where you can accommodate this, right? So you have to have a branch that is basically only taking uh, bug fixes, uh, which in our case was the main branch. And then you would have to have a develop branch or maybe give it the version number. Uh, of course, also there, there are different strategies how to go about it. Uh, so what we did has have the develop branch, which would have each week, we would merge the changes that went into main to develop. So, you know, so we also have the, uh, bug fixes in our develop branch. And then in develop with the big air quotes, uh, the big development was happening, right? So adding new stuff, adding new controls, adding new properties, maybe removing properties, like the actual breaking changes. Uh, and then at some point, you know, if we decided like, hey, it's time to do a new major release, then we would push everything from develop back to main. And then it would be even for a little point in time and um, go from there basically in the same cycle. Uh, but you know that you have to think yourself like hey do i need to open this pr against main or against develop but also you know if you're working with open source you have these outside contributors so they also need to kind of know where to put what right so you also have to put out like guidance on how to work with your repo and your branches and hope they will follow that or instruct them if they don't and etc cetera, etc cetera. so it's basically a lot of work to maintain it properly I guess. That is generally true. I mean, if you've got versions out there that you want to support, like you got version one and then you bring out version two, but you still support version one with security patches and stuff like that, it can become quite interesting on the Git side to watch what kind of branching strategy will you drive. Uh, some that only have one major version live, they will just uh, maybe take a trunk-based development and add them. But generally, there's no one-size-fits-all. And if you're bored, uh, at an evening with developers, just go with one strategy and say it's the best and lean back for the next two hours while the discussion unfolds in front of you. Anyhow, uh, another thing that I've noticed is there are like some marketing-driven versioning numbers. I don't know if that's an official term, but I'll just call it like that. So whenever there's a new release coming up of a, of a software, and I have done this in the past, so whenever a client wanted a new version of his software, it would always be a major release because... Even if there were just some features added, or even if it was just a pure maintenance release by adding some new contents or changing out some icons and changing some colors, stuff like that, it was a major release. So I think there's also that. So for me, the versioning numbers really play a big role in my daily life or where I would be really glad if people followed it. It's usually for libraries or if I think uh, software as a service, because there I am glad if if the, communi if, if the communication is... is quite straightforward like hey i made a breaking change be aware of it so those are the 
the things where I then will go and read through the release notes to make sure am I using a feature that is now no longer working the same way. Another thing that I've noticed is there are some really interesting types how you can do some of the minor or maintenance build version numbers that you put in the week. I think Windows 10 also has got this versioning scheme where they say, hey, it's Win 10, and then you have the year, and then you have the half year or the quarter or the week or the day of the year or something like that. Did you ever work in a project where they went with such a weekly date-based project to identify their releases? I see. I see in the other recording booths, they are shaking their head. No. No, I never did. I think it was always fun because I remember, I remember once being on a project and I think the idea behind going with week-based, it would be easier to remember what release it was. So if you're if you're putting out quite a few releases, it was like, ah, oh, yeah, sure, that was the release from April, mid-April, so mid-April, we did that. But I mean, just if you ask people what they had two weeks ago for lunch, I mean, you can see where this idea sometimes starts to fall apart, or so at least that, the background motivation. But... Yeah, there's not just, you don't have to just use incremental build versions. You can also spice it up a bit and put in some meaningful versions. And I think if you do not release very often, like if you release quarterly or once every half years, Windows 10 does it uh, for the bigger updates. Uh, I think this can really help because you can probably better re- remember a 20H1 than a 1235-782. I think there's a couple of interesting things in there, like what you mentioned for the Windows versions. I mean, kind of like they have three layers of versions because you have Windows 10, Windows 11, which is basically more like the product, I guess, but it also says something about the version. Then they have, like you say, the... Uh, what do they call it, Win 20 or 21, and then, like you say, H1 or H2. I think they did it quarterly before, but I think they moved it up to um, six months. So yeah. the H1 is then the first half of the year, and the H2 is the second half of the year. People complained. Uh, but the, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And, and the actual version number is then, you know, an actual version number, as you would expect. So they have kind of three layers of version number. So maybe, you know, and, and <laughs> you know, if you listen to the the... Um, uh, some people on the big bad interwebs, they're saying like, you know, uh, the, Microsoft said that Windows 10 was going to be the last version and it would just get in place updates basically. And now uh, marketing was not selling enough Windows because like you said, Mark, everything has to be major. There has to be a new version where everything is bigger, better, or fantasticer. Um, so they had to create Windows 11 uh, just so they could sell it again um, and say that it was new and shiny. Um, anyway, I don't know what's true. And also on the marketing version, I also heard those people on the same big bad interwebs that like in the app stores, if we bring it back to like our um, own reference of the world, that sometimes the app store updates aren't really updates, that they're just there to put that app under your attention again. Because, you know, usually the descriptions are like bug fixes. Okay. General general performance improvements. Yeah, or that. Works or that. like a job. Or some fun description in there where we are fun and playful on Friday and we say, ooh, we squashed all the bugs and we dusted off all the, I don't know, they yeah. create nice things. Uh, but, you know, that's also bringing that app back under your attention, maybe with the funny text. It's like you're going to share that on socials. I mean, it's going to be very minimal, I feel. Uh, but, you know, wherever you can squeeze out a couple of more downloads, you probably have to do it. So, but if we go back to the actual, like more technical version numbers, uh, I think what also Xamarin Forms does is have basically, 
I think you also have so okay here is where we go really meta now you have like sem version so semver uh, semantic versioning I think that concept in itself has also version numbers of like the the uh, format that you can apply so I think you have semantic versioning 2.0 or something which also allows to have a little plus sign I think and then have some extra info after your version number and I think Xamarin Forms puts in there some extra data and what the, what they actually put in there is the commit of git that is actually the the tag then from you know the set that point in time is where we took this version from so you can always bring it back to that git commit um, so you know that uh, that is basically the set of code in that point of time that that binary is based upon so that's also something that you can include in there to know exactly which code you're running against but yeah like you dear listener probably already are hearing from all of this there is so many ways to do that which one is the right one i don't know but you decide absolutely and i think that there is no one right way also for versioning numbers and i mean if you look at apple i mean they have been on mac os 10 i think now since forever and they they don't even mention it anymore it's just mac os Mo Harvey, Stephen is giving me the stare. I, we might no longer be on Mac OS 10. We might be on whatever. But they, they, they just ditch the numbers. They are just now naming sites around California, which are which are nice. And you can get some inspiration for the designers, what they should bring up for a new desktop background image every time you make a new OS update. So yeah, I think you, that, that could be a reason why you ditch numbers. And they also don't make that many updates. So it's easy to remember instead of uh, just some strange number thing going on. And having two version numbers is also nothing really new. I mean, if you have developed a mobile app, you will know that there is like some kind of a public version number that you show the user and you can have a internal version number uh, which you then can increment as you like, which the user never sees. And you can do funky stuff with that. I usually have them in sync because I don't really have that many changes, but I do know that sometimes if you increment, I think only the minor parts of a version and you submit to test flight, you will have a quicker processing time because you communicate to the testing team, hey, I didn't really add anything new. I'm just fixing bugs. So that can be quite helpful if you are developing and pushing out regular updates because you are still working towards the public release. So coming back to the fact that you said Mac OS 11 doesn't exist, it does actually. It's called Big Sur and it's going to be followed up by Mac OS 12, which is Monterey, which they demoed just a few weeks ago. But yeah, definitely before that, it was like 10.15, 10.14. And they also all had names of places around California. So just ignore the numbers would would almost be a better choice in the macOS ecosystem because it can get very confusing. And what can also get quite confusing, I don't know if you've seen this, betas that never end. Like software that, that to this day still has this little beta label next to it. And for all intents and purposes, it's been there for years. And you're like, okay, when when is this ever going to end? Has anyone ever seen stuff like that? I think the biggest one that comes to mind when you talk about this never-ending better things are, is Gmail. Uh, I don't know. I think Gmail has been in better or used to be in better for like 245 years, something around there, give or take. 
And yeah, you, you, it was it was feature complete. I don't know what they changed. They, they might have still done stuff, but that was uh, that's the one that comes to mind. And I've also seen libraries that have been out there that have got O dot something versions, and they're like the major building blocks of some of the larger frameworks out there. And it's just like you probably will never be able to make a quick breaking change. I mean, the the one unwritten rule, maybe it's written. Uh, I've heard out there is if the major number is zero all bets are off the hook. So even minor changes might be huge rewrites of an entire library. It's just a better. So people are still finding the way how this could be working out properly. And if you are misusing that O dot something as a moniker because you are, I don't know, not sure if this ever will be a 1.0 thing or you don't really want to make a 1.0 thing, can be confusing. At least in, in my head, it's confusing. How about you, Joel? I think as long as you kind of communicate as the the creator or maintainer of a library, like, hey, this is what we intend to do with major or minor or whatever you're using for versions, um, then that's something that people can depend upon, right? But the other kind of the story is, like you say, people or companies or whatever might not even care about it. They'll just take it and come complaining when stuff stops working. Or, you know, that's where also the versioning comes in. You just say, hey, I know that this package does what it's supposed to do. I'll just going to pin it to this for now until I have time or other resources um, to actually look into like the major new stuff and um, um, re-evaluate that then later. Uh, but you kind of triggered me with like, you know, the, the, the odd and the even numbers. I think you actually mean something else, but that brought up in my mind, like the .NET versioning numbers. I think there it also implicates some kind of um, long-term support version or not. So I think every even number is going to be long-term support. So that means it will have a support window of a long, long time. And that means that it will get bug fixes a long time. So I think .NET 5 is actually you know, a, a short um, support window. So actually that will just be until .NET 6 comes out. And .NET 6 is a long-term support version. Um, so then after .NET 7 comes out, it will still, .NET 6 will still get all the um, same bug fixes that .NET 7 does as well. Um, so there it also has the application of like, you know, is something long-term support or not? And again, you know, if you, that's something that you can communicate to your users, then I think you're good. And on that, we will wrap up our show on versioning software. We have been your hosts, Mark Halibone, Stephen Davison, and Jaros Vitlaus 1.0. Let us know, what are your experiences, may they be fun or miseries with versioning software, or have we missed out on the best versioning system ever? Let us know at nowpoints.io. DMs are open. Thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcasting app. Stay safe, and until next week on Nowpointers. version increment.